Welcome to Fam Room Discussions, where I open up my fam room to talk about the week's lessons from Come Follow Me. I'm not a church historian or a scripture scholar. I'm just an average Latter-day Saint seeking to grow my faith in Christ and deepen my testimony of the gospel and the scriptures. Discussing Come Follow Me with others helps me in my conversion. I hope you'll join in the gospel dialogue by sharing your insights. Without further ado, let's start this family room discussion. Sisters and brothers, family and friends, this is episode 23, following along with In Remembrance, Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and John chapter 13. Uh, before I begin, I want to tell you about a life event that I went through last month, and I, th- I believe I've already, I've already made mention of this, but um, I just want to do it in a more, I don't know, emphasized way. My grandpa Reese, um, Gerald Reese, he passed away last month. He was 85, he just passed away a few days after his 85th birthday, um, which was the same age that his dad, my great grandpa had passed away. Um, and I, I love my grandpa. I, you know, the, I think the greatest, I don't know, frustration I had in life was that my grandpa and I have different love languages. Um, we both interpret love languages differently. And so I, have not I would not define us as being like particularly close emotionally um because just because we had different personalities very different personalities but the one thing I know for sure is that um I loved him and he loved me and we both knew that we loved one another and so even though you know our personalities weren't exactly the same and we had we did not see eye to eye on various I don't know he was a very serious man, and I'm, if you know me, I'm very not ser- serious, probably like 95% of the time. And so we were very different that way. Um, but I do want to take a moment, and I, I just want to both thank my grandpa um, and, and honor him with a particular lesson that he taught me when I was 12 years old, and it has shaped my entire life. And this will tie in uh, to the introduction of this lesson, actually. And so... Uh, I've shared this historically. I don't know how long it's been since the last time I shared this, but I did not grow up uh, with a dad in which I could pattern my life, uh, you know, pattern my life after in the gospel until I was 14. And then my mom married my dad, Roland. um, And then I had that example. But uh, before that, it was actually my grandpa who I asked to ordain me to the office of a deacon and and, uh, bless me with the ironic priesthood. And so um, not only did he take that responsibility to ordain me, but he also took it as his duty to teach me and to instruct me on the office of a deacon and uh, the responsibilities of the Aaronic priesthood. And so things I remember, I remember being in his house. Uh, we sat down at the kitchen table, uh, him, my grandma, my mom, my sister. And this was prior to me getting uh, set apart and ordained, and I, I remember he, as he was talking about the sacrament, he said, look, this is a this is an extremely serious responsibility you're going to have, you're going to be doing this weekly, and this is how I expect you, this is how the Lord expects you to honor your priesthood. Never slouch. He's like, I, I see too many young men, when they're passing the sacrament, they slouch, they, you know, they're just looking around goofy, and their arms are dangling about at their sides. He said, never slouch. You walk, you walk with an upright back, you walk straight, you carry the tray at a 90 degree angle. And you really emphasize that, you know, he's like, keep your arm at a 90 degree angle. Don't have it dangling the tray and throwing bread everywhere and acting like you don't care about your duty. He said, you, you hold it 
at a 90 degree, your arm at a 90 degree angle, you hold the tray respectfully, you pass it carefully. Um, he said, you protect the, the Christ's body as you're carrying it. He said, don't stare at people as you're passing the sacrament. You know, you go to a row, you stand next to it, you pass it. And he said, let it be, this is a, the sacrament, partaking of the sacrament is a sacred and private experience for individuals. So give them the privacy that they deserve. Stand at the side. Don't, don't stare at them. Um, and wait until the tray comes to you and then grab it. And then, you know, he said, be careful and be, be, uh, serious about how you carry yourself. You don't laugh when you're packing, passing the sacrament. You don't make jokes to your buddies. You don't make faces. You don't treat the sacrament lightly. And, um, you know, I, that conversation was probably 20 to 30 minutes long of him going over how I'm supposed to act, you know, have a white shirt and tie, um, make sure that my shoes are shined and, and everything. I mean, he, he really took it serious. I was 12 years old and I, looking back, I'm like, man, he took that really serious for a 12 year old. But, um, although he was teaching me almost like me, like, uh, militaristically, right. How to how to pass with precision and exactness. Um, I have seen one, I experienced in myself, the effects of that teaching and, and that training. And I've seen the opposite effects of those parents who don't teach their kids to take it seriously. And I've seen the results that that has for me in my life. It's been profound. Um, I remember growing up, you know, no one would ever <laughs> really tell me there's some people who would, but for the most part, it'd be like individuals and adults in the ward would come up to my mom and would say, wow, you are such an incredible mom for being able to raise a son who takes the sacrament seriously, who who passes it with such precision and, you know, really makes it uh, um, that the spirit can be there, you know. And while well, I do have an incredible mother, and that's true, the compliments, um, they don't belong to me at all for that, growing up that way. Um, when it comes to how uh, how I looked at my my priest of duties as a deacon, as a teacher, as a priest. Honestly, I have to give credit to my grandpa. Um, he, like I said, him, my grandpa and I could not be more opposite in how we view, you know, humor and the time and places for humor, but he is a hundred percent in the right when it comes to respecting God's ordinances. And so, um, you know, my grandpa was a temple sealer for a very long time. And, held a lot of church callings and always took every single calling seriously. Like I said, maybe sometimes too seriously, but, um, I love my grandpa for being the man I needed him to be, to teach me what it means to be a priesthood holder and a, a carrier of the Lord's priesthood and, and taking that seriously because I even look around every time we go into a ward building and I look at the deacons and the teachers and the priests and how they handle it. And some, some are great examples and some, um, you, you can tell just haven't been taught. They haven't been instructed with the same seriousness that I was. Um, that's not a, it's not a diss on them. It's, it is a diss on maybe their instructors and just maybe, uh, sometimes we do need instructors who take things seriously. And while I had a uh, instructor who definitely took it to the full extent of seriousness, I am so grateful for it and just changed my life. So, um, I love you, grandpa. I know that, uh, I have a firm testimony. Obviously it's not the, uh, last time. But I will see him. Not only do I believe that I don't necessarily need to wait until the next life, um, but even if I do, I I know that he will be there, uh, waiting for for me uh, in my you know reception party, and I have no doubt about that. And for that reason, 
I have complete peace about his passing and I'm, and I'm extremely grateful for my testimony. So I uh, just wanted to, to give that uh, preface before we started this lesson. The day before he died, Jesus gave his disciples something to remember him by. He took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it for this is my blood. That happened about 2,000 years ago in a place most of us will never see in a language few of us can understand. But now, every Sunday in our own meeting places, priests and holders authorized to act in the name of Jesus Christ do what he once did. They take bread and water, bless it, and give it to each of us, his disciples. It's a simple act. Can there be anything simpler, more fundamental than eating bread and drinking water? But that bread and water are sacred to us because they help us remember him. They're our way of saying, I'll never forget him. Not just, I'll never forget what I've read about his teachings and his life. Rather, we are saying, I'll never forget what he did for me. I'll never forget how he rescued me when I cried out for help. And I'll never forget his commitment to me and my commitment to him, the covenant we have made. And we do forget constantly. I constantly forget. That's a beautiful introduction, but that's, I forget all the time. And I want, I mean, I'm just going to propose this, but why do you think we're commanded to go weekly to church to partake of the sacrament? It's because we can't even go 24 hours without forgetting about the commitments and the covenants we've made. I'm constantly forgetting. Um, you know, we, we commit in the sacrament to remember Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, always. And like before sacraments even over, I'm already thinking about, Oh no, what, what is, what do I have on my to-do list for the week and what things do I have to get done? And Oh, I hope work isn't a bad day tomorrow. And, da, 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 and I've already forgotten. And I think, um, there's an attack that I've noticed that I want to share. I've, I've observed this attack by the adversary. Um, it's worked quite effectively on those of my generation. Um, but there are those who I would deem as like the elect of God who have be like, because of their obedience in life, their goodness, especially from a young age, right? They have taken pride in their goodness, their obedience, and have become tempted to believe that they are somehow now above the commandments of God, that they no longer need to, you know, follow the commandments that have been given to them or counsel that they've received. They're, they're above that. They're too good for that. And, the Sabbath day going to church, right. Is one, one such commandment that I've seen people say that they're, you know, they're above, they, they're not getting anything from Sunday school. They're not getting anything from their quorum classes or from sacrament. And well, quite frankly, they're getting more from their, their individual study. So what's the point of even going, they might as well just study the scriptures at home and not go. And I can tell you that the speed at which I've seen those individuals, that the moment they go from like being elect to, fallen away and the bad apple, so to speak, is so rapid. I've actually seen it shift some friends where in a couple of months of them falling into this pride trap, this cycle of believing that they're they're above the commandments of God, like somehow they've uh, graduated from them and it's, you know, Sabbath day observance isn't for them. I don't even recognize them. Like not just like spiritually, but phys physically, I don't even recognize them anymore. And... I just want to give this warning, like, don't be deceived. If you have been tempted in any way in this way, this is an attack by Satan. It's a very effective one. Um, it goes straight to believing. Like, you know, he tells you great things about yourself. Like, oh, 
Look at how much you do for people. Look at how much you know more than everyone else around you, even in the church. You're above this. You don't need these commandments. I remember for me, the attack came on my mission, actually. It was like within the first five weeks of me being out in the mission field. And I remember feeling very strongly that I was like, I know more than half of the missionaries I'm serving with. They don't even know what the Book of Mormon says. And I know all these stories. Why am I out here serving, wasting my time when they haven't even read the Book of Mormon? I'm not doing something for investigators. I have to go and help my companion or or these missionaries in my district and zone. And that pride, that attack, you know, was very subtle. And I remember thinking, I might as well go home because I'm above this. I'm so glad that I didn't listen to those temptations that I was able to work through them, but I remember that being a very specific attack that was very dangerous and could have altered my life if I would have uh, listened to that sweet voice of Satan and let him tell me how great I am, because that's what he'll do. He'll tell you you're amazing. You're, you're above the commandments. You don't need the commandments. If you let that stick, it will lead to your ultimate destruction. Be very careful. Satan is a, a sweet talker, um, and honestly... We all like hearing really good things about ourselves. So it's dangerous when it feels like the only person you're hearing from them from is Satan. In the first section, it says, she has come to anoint my body to the burying. This is talking about uh, Mary. And I, I think it's interesting because in, this is just an observation. A couple of weeks ago, like two weeks ago, right? Um, it actually addressed in John chapter 12 that it was Mary. But and then in this section's reading, for the week, it just says it's like a, a woman that anointed his head. And the story is a little bit different because in uh, the section in John, it actually says anoints Christ's feet with her hair, right? It talked about the the spike nerd filling the room of this house. And, and so I just, I don't understand why the accounts didn't align perfectly here. I don't have the answers. So if you do, please let me know. I would love to have some insight into this, but it's something that I observed Uh and I didn't even think about calling it out, except that in church we talked about this. And everyone just kind of carried on. Like, no one no one even addressed that it was Mary, even though we had read two weeks ago that it was Mary. Uh, people seemed fine that it was just this, like, random woman. So I was, like, sitting there being like, hold on. Am I just, am I crazy? I actually spent 15 minutes trying to figure out. Because I was like, I swear it was Mary. Why do I think it's Mary? Did I just make this up? And it wasn't until, like, the end of class, as we'd already, like, gone off from this discussion. Anyway. I digress, but I don't know why it doesn't align. My guess, if I had a guess, was that uh, John has it right. It was Mary. He would have probably been part of this um, this story. Not that all 12 of the apostles wouldn't have been there necessarily, but I just assume if not all the 12 were there, Peter, James, and John probably would have been. Therefore, I, I tend to believe that John has his record correct on this one. And then it was Mary and that she had saved this uh, ointment being so close to the savior, obviously, and having this relationship, she would have known about his mission, um, would have known that his life would have to be given as a sacrifice. She'd been saving this for this very moment to anoint his body for the burying and knew that. And I, I just imagine that being such a tender and sweet moment. Um, obviously we know more apostles were there than just uh, Peter, James and John, because who calls her out, but Judas, the lying hypocrite. Um, so anyway, yeah. Uh, in the fourth section, and I, sorry, I have nothing else to say about that other than I just thought it was interesting that they didn't align and that come follow me doesn't seem to call that out. In the fourth section, it says the savior is our example of humbly serving others. 
And the, uh, the scripture I love here is in John chapter 13, verse 14. It says, if I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Um, this act is only really mentioned in John. I think it's interesting, uh, and it could be mentioned, mentioned in Luke, but because of the, this week was only Matthew and Mark, uh, I didn't remember to go back and check Luke. I believe it's only in John. If I'm wrong, I'll bring it up in the next episode. Um, the reason I find it interesting that John brings it up, though, is that his account was directed for members specifically. He wasn't, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke are for an investigator crowd, John is very much for the members. It was like, you know, the general church handbook type of thing. This wasn't for your just anyone to pick up and read. So because his message were, was made for the church and for, for members already, it would make sense that he would talk about this because this isn't just an act. It's actually an ordinance. Um, Joseph Smith instituted this very thing in the school of the prophets with the apostles. And so this is a very uh, important and sacred thing, the, uh, Christ washing the feet. And so that it makes sense to me why John brings it up, the others don't. But it's also greater than that. It's, this is an uh, important example that the Savior is giving us. This is, I mean, it's a complete paradox when you look at it. The world tells us that true leadership is those who are served, essentially. Like, no one says that, especially, you know, HR has gotten involved now. And we're like, no, 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 it's about being a servant. Yeah, but before that, right, the world said to be a great leader, you have to have a bunch of people doing stuff for you. You're the head, you're leading it out, and you're telling everyone what to do. That, that was a great leader. Now, like I said... In uh, great cultures, we know that that's not the case. Um, great companies, you have to actually have true leadership. But Christ is the one who's taught us this. This is where we're learning these true principles. The greatest among us should be serving the most, not being served the most. And so, one, if I could offer any kind of, like, how should you live your life then based off of this scripture, stop looking for ways to be served. And we do it constantly. I do it constantly. I'm always thinking, man, if someone would just do this for me or that for me, or if someone would recognize me or if someone, blah, 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 quit looking for ways. Stop it. You're actually making yourself miserable and sad um, doing that way. I think we take that scripture, uh, he who shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. And we're like, yeah, totally believe it. And then we don't even try to implement it. <laughs> and then we're like, as we go out and serve, we sit there, we're exhausted. It's been a long day. Your feet are sore. Your back is sore. Uh, your hands are blistered and bruised and heck, even emotionally, you might be beaten down. And we just say, I've done everything and no one did anything for me. Why do I feel this way? Christ, and I've looked, I've been looking as we've been going through this. I cannot find a single example where Christ expected to be served or where he was going and finding like ways that he, he could be served versus doing the serving, right? If for instance, one example you might say uh, as a counterpoint would be like, well, Don, what about the part where he has his disciples go and find uh, the colt and the ass, right? Like, what about that? Christ was using that as an opportunity to teach and to build faith, right? He was using everything as opportunities to, again, help all those around him, his disciples, the people, uh, everything was a serving opportunity. He never was looking for ways to kind of ease his own life, and at the very end, obviously, uh, even said to the Heavenly Father, I know you have all power. If it be thy will, let this cut pass from me, but not my will be done. Thine be done. He was never looking for ways for his will to happen. 
He was the ultimate servant. He set this example for us. And so I just, as I've thought about this, I'm like, I can't even, I mean, that's, that is perfection. That's perfection. I can't go a day without being like, why the heck hasn't someone served me? Now I'm serving people. Why is no one serving me? Right. And it's this inward looking inward, this natural man. And Christ rejected every, every opportunity to look inward and to serve himself. Um, the example we can take of, of when he started doing this was obviously with the temptation. I mean, his whole life, but the temptations of Satan, Satan comes, tries to tempt him and everything was within his power to do, which would be to serve himself. And yet he doesn't, he never uses his power to serve himself. Even when he could save his life, he had the ability to call the angels to save him and he doesn't. And so when you're like, well, why, when you sit there thinking, why don't I have people, you know, taking care of me and stuff? Just remember, you are following in the footsteps of the Savior. And I know it doesn't make it any easier in the moment. But know that you are being seen and that to be the greatest means to be going and following the footsteps of the Savior. It's very difficult. It's going to require everything from you, your physical, emotional, your spiritual energy, everything and it honestly takes practice. I think that's the hardest part for me to to swallow. It's that that hard pill to recognize that we have to be truly humble and it takes a lot of practice. So, no, it'll never be good enough because there's never like an end to becoming perfect once you're there, uh, which won't be in this lifetime. Once you're there, you will stop asking the question in essence because Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ have shown us that as celestial beings, their whole eternity is dedicated to our betterment. So, no, you, you'll you never be at that point where all of a sudden people are serving you. That's not true leadership. True leadership is being the ultimate servant. There are some additional scriptures I want to share and go into um, just that I feel like aren't covered and I don't know, they're important to me. So in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24 and Mark chapter 14, verse 21, I'll read both of these verses. Uh, both, I think highlight an important point that got brought up at church as well that I, I didn't want to counter cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to cause a dispute in church, but I have no problem doing it on my podcast. It says the son of man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It had been better for that man if he had not been born. And then in Mark, the son of man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Is my conclusion from this ver these two verses that Judas Iscariot is indeed a son of perdition. Why do I make such a, a, a claim? And I, I don't know, maybe you're like, that's not that bold. I knew that. Not everyone does. Uh, in church, we're literally talking about, you know, someone's like, he might be a son of perdition. I, I don't think it's my, I think he 100% is. And why the, it had been better that he had not been born. Um, that's essentially the language of a son of perdition. And why? Because we know that the right decision to make before in the pre-mortal life, before we came here, uh, was to come down, to get to receive a body, right? So, so therefore being born, right? Even if you're uh, a murderer, we know that you receive a telestial glory at, at minimum, right? So just going through this experience, this mortal journey, even if you're the worst person ever, as long as in the end you don't deny uh, 
the Holy Ghost, then it's better that you were born because you receive heaven, uh, celestial glory, but heaven. So to say it is better, it had been better that he had not been born means essentially it's the same fate as uh, those who decided not to come down, those followers of Satan, the one third of heaven, um, the host of heaven. It would have been better to be with them than to have gone through the mortal experience, receive a body, and still get the same fate as the sons of perdition. So that's that's my conclusion for, yeah, Judas Iscariot's the son of perdition. It also makes sense then why immediately following the Savior's um, death, Judas goes and hangs himself on a tree because he knew it didn't matter at that point. There was nothing he could do. He knew his fate. Um, his, it was not a good one. So it, it didn't matter at that point what happened to him. That's that's uh, Anyway, that's my belief. I feel pretty confident about it. I don't know if that's like, I don't know, maybe there's counter scripture or counterpoints out there, but I just, it got brought up today. Someone was like, well, maybe he is. I'm like, I'm pretty positive that he a hundred percent is. Then in Matthew 26, 35, it says, Peter said unto him, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Um, This is the other, other thought I have. I've heard it suggested potentially that uh, Peter was actually instructed to deny the savior. And I don't believe that's true. The reason I don't believe that's true is because why would we have a scripture here that's explaining that Peter's like, no, I won't deny you. And this is in front of all the apostles, right? And it's like, Christ says, you're going to deny me. And he's like, I will never, I'll, I'll never deny you. And all the other disciples are like, yeah, we'll never deny you. And then in Matthew 26, verse 75, um, right. Like, Cause Christ then gives the, the sign, the cock will crow, uh, so then in 2675, it says that Peter remembered the words, the word of Jesus, which said unto him before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice and went out and wept bitterly. Why would Peter have that reaction of weeping bitterly if he had been asked by the savior earlier? Like, Hey, I need you to deny me because I have purposes. Like you'll be killed if you don't. Um, right. Like I just, I don't think you'd have that reaction if you had been fulfilling a commandment. So while I do understand the uh, hypothesis that some have presented saying that, no, Peter was actually fulfilling a different mission and we just don't know about it, I, I don't think you can go through scripture reading it that way, uh, trying to interpret scripture, like the, the be, between the lines, behind the scenes type of thing. I'm not saying that it's not possible. I just, it doesn't make sense to me at all. And I think we do have a tendency as members to try and like, almost like perfect people before they became um, kind of like the legend that we know them to be like Nephi. He talks about uh, having all these regrets and being an imperfect, Oh, imperfect man that I am. And, blah, blah. and we're like, what are you talking about? I think we, we don't, we fail to see the fact that like Nephi wrote the story, uh, but he probably didn't write all the times that he maybe, you know, was really angry with his brothers and wanted to beat them. Like, he, he didn't, but he wanted to, and, and maybe it was those things. My point being, we don't always see every single detail about the scriptures because, again, these are essentially journals uh, written for us, so we're not going to receive every detail. We obviously know what the New Testament, Old Testament, those, they were up to the interpretation and, and translation of both mortal men and also imperfect men and sometimes wicked men who purposely changed or edited the scriptures However, I also don't think, don't go through the scriptures trying to like 
read these behind the scenes things that just aren't there. Peter was an imperfect man. He becomes, uh, and Elder Holland talks about this in multiple talks, but Peter goes from Peter, the imperfect disciple who cuts people's ears off to becoming Peter, the man who healed, uh, healed the dead, like brought people back from the dead, who uh, did all manner of healings, became the legendary apostle who, as legend tells, refused to be uh, hung or crucified in the same way of Christ that was crucified upside down because uh, did not want to disrespect the Savior in his death. That it that did not happen. Peter did not become that Peter this night of the Savior's life. Uh, the other thing that just evidence I ha- I would say to my point here um, is the fact that what does Peter do after Christ is gone? He goes fishing. He goes back to what he had been doing. I think if he was this, you know, the the perfected Peter, so to speak, he would have known not to go fishing. I mean, he was still a mortal man. He still was not understanding his full calling yet as the rock in which Christ would build his church. And so maybe you never had that thought or you've never heard that before. I have, and I've, I've thought about it a lot, and this was the scripture I wanted to share it in. So that's all I got from this lesson. That's what I wanted to share my invitation to you this week is that as we essentially I invite you to strive to follow the Savior's example and humbly serving those around us and stop seeking ways to be served. As we do that, I promise that you will find a closer alignment and a magnification of your countenance with that of the Savior's. Thank you for joining my fan room discussion and until we meet again, have a blessed week.